Hi everyone, I'm Mary Onion, RSA's outgoing medical student council chair and incoming RSA board member at large. Welcome back to our podcast, Empower, a social EM series where humanity meets medicine. During this episode, we'll be covering an important topic near and dear to our guest speakers' hearts, human trafficking. I'm excited to welcome our experts on today's topic. We will have each of them tell us a little about themselves as well as how and why they got started with human trafficking advocacy. I'll invite Dr. Jenny Reyes to go first. Hi, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So, uh, Dr. Reyes, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, how you got started in social EM, specifically human trafficking advocacy, and and a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, I'm a Texas native. I was born in El Paso, Texas, which is born a town, did my training in Miami. Um, and it was actually in residency that I learned um, that, you know, Florida was the third highest state for the number of victims of trafficking. Uh, and we were basically seeing them, whether we uh, were aware of it or not, every day in the department. Um, so at the time, we didn't have any social workers, we didn't have a protocol, and honestly, no one really knew what human trafficking was. Um, so I kind of just willed it to create a, a protocol and uh, got our faculty and staff trained up. Um, and it was just really an empowering experience, um, hearing some of the patient stories um, and kind of learning more about it and spreading awareness. Um, and that's kind of where it got started. Um, after that, a lot of us, you know, are now across the country. Um, a lot of my colleagues have also started protocols at their institutions. So it's just really inspiring seeing how many people out there can uh, raise awareness about trafficking. Awesome. We're glad to have you here. Next, I'll have Dr. Santosh Paulus. Please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what got you into this field. Thank you for having me here. Uh, my name is Santosh Paulus. I'm a family medicine physician. Uh, I work at Huntington Hospital, a part of Northwell Health. And um, I'm the father of uh, four girls and uh, kind of how I got involved, uh, just found myself uh, with my wife. We were attending a music festival in uh, New Hampshire. Um, it was back around 2012 and uh, our kids were there and we were hearing from an organization from the Boston area and they were speaking about their anti-trafficking efforts. And I just remember kind of watching um, the stage and just uh, my girls were kind of in my view as I was listening to the, the statistics and just a little bit shocked about hearing about all these things with human trafficking and um, definitely it hit me in my heart and I could tell at that point um, I, I needed to do something about it. I was surprised that it was happening here in our backyards. I kind of just was very naive, thought it happened elsewhere. And um, my wife and I, from that moment, we we decided to start a not-for-profit called Cycling for Change. And um, we led a team of cyclists from Washington State back to Long Island in 2015. And the whole idea was to raise awareness and funds to, to fight human trafficking. And it was through those um, efforts that um, at Northwell that I ended up being able to um, start our human trafficking response program at Northwell. Um, had an opportunity here uh, from Dr. Ronald Chambers at a conference out in Kansas City, and he had started a medical safe haven for victims of trafficking, and so then kind of used that as a, a model and kind of inspired us to do something similar at Northwell. That's amazing to hear. I'm super excited to eventually get into all these cool topics and projects and, and efforts that everyone has gotten into. I'll also have Miss Wanda Green introduce herself as well. Good afternoon. Thank you so much um, for having me. So I'm Ms. Wolanda Green, and I work for Northwell Health in our Human Trafficking Advocacy Response and Training Program, Education Program. 
Um, and I began my work within human trafficking because there are local organizations um, that I have volunteered with, as well as I have a dear friend. Her mother has a ministry where she dedicates her time to helping survivors and victims of human trafficking um, more on the grounds and in the streets and providing um, his basic necessities if needed and then connecting to resources. And it felt like it was such an amazing thing she was doing. Um, and she's in Georgia, I'm in the state of New York. And um, just always like kind of contributing and helping when I can and what I could. And so when I connected with Dr. Santosh Paulus and trying to help establish these things up within Northwell, it was just such a great thing just to be a part of and watching the program grow and taking a passion that I have outside of the organization and bringing it into what I do every day has just been rewarding and so thankful for it. So thank you again for having me. Thank you so much for that. Um, and then I will have our last panelist and speakers uh, introduce themselves, Dr. Dana Kaplan. Thank you so much for the warm welcome. Um, so my name is Dana. I am um, the Director of Child Abuse and Neglect at Staten Island University Hospital, which is a part of Northwell Health. I'm also the medical director of the Staten Island Child Advocacy Center. Um, I am a child abuse pediatrician. Um, so I am a rare breed within pediatrics. There's only about 400 of us across the United States. Um, and uh, I am trained to evaluate suspected cases of child physical abuse, child sexual abuse, neglect, and really all things child maltreatment. Um, so I did a fellowship in child abuse pediatrics um, up at Hasbro Children's Hospital in Providence, Rhode Island. And um, about a month into fellowship, we had a patient present um, who was a 15-year-old female, and she had stated that she was escorting. And that didn't seem right to me. Um, it did, That the way she was used the term escort that didn't square up with the fact that she was a teenager in my mind. And quite frankly, I didn't really know what to ask her. Um, so that began a journey for me and for those I was working with on how to educate ourselves as healthcare providers in regards to this very specific patient population. And I did a lot of work in fellowship and continued that work once I finished fellowship and began working here in um, Staten Island, and um, has been doing that work ever since. That's great to hear um, how you got involved. It's unfortunate to hear, um, you know, a lot of folks, I feel like, forget that there is, it's our patients in our community, it's the children in our community, there is no specific defined role or what someone who's a victim looks like, you know, it affects all of us. And I think this is a great segue to kind of talk about the discussion, like have a discussion regarding the language we use when advocating for human trafficking. You know, I've always heard this idea that words have power and that their meaning influences our perceptions, our beliefs, drives our behavior, and essentially creates the world that we live in. I know in prior discussions, we've kind of talked a little bit about the language we use and, and why it's important to use certain terms the way that we use them. So if you could um, kind of explain to us uh, what words that we should be focusing on and, and why. So I, I can go ahead and start with that as it kind of segues into the patient that you know I was just speaking about. 
Um, so when that patient self-identified as an escort, and again, that didn't score up with me, I started doing some just Google searches. And I was like, what, what, what is the name for this population? Because escort, teen prostitute, that doesn't, that doesn't sound right. That's not, that's not really what's going on here. And then finally, I stumbled across two terms. I stumbled across commercial sexual exploitation of children, and then more specifically, domestic minor sex trafficking. And when I saw that, I said, that's what's, this is, this is what we're seeing. And because I was able to identify the language, right, the language that we use affects how we think about a population, but also how we intervene on behalf of a population. So once I had the language, those tools, I was able to identify places that we could go for training. And the first place we went was My Life, My Choice, which is an organization up in um, Boston, which is very similar to GEMS here in New York City. Um, so it's very important to make sure that we define a population, you know, so that we can get the appropriate resources and understand how to educate ourselves. Dr. Paulus? Yeah, I just, I was going to just add to, to that as well. Um, you know, sometimes people refer to uh, like a child prostitute or a teen prostitute and it goes along with the, what Dana just said, you know, it, we need to call it for what it is. Um, it's commercial sexual exploitation of children. Um, so we should be referring in those situations to um, a trafficking survivor. Um, kids, you know, should not be involved in commercial sex, period. Um, and so what happens is that they're actual victims um, and they're survivors of trafficking and survivors of sexual exploitation. So it's important that we don't refer to them as young prostitutes, that kind of implies there's some kind of a, a delinquency and some kind of fault of their own. Um, a lot of times kids are in situations where they're just trying to survive. Um, and so they, they may be making a choice, but it's a choice between really tough and terrible situations. And so um, that's, that's where they find themselves. And so I think language definitely matters. Yeah, I, was, I remember uh, listening to a podcast about um, human trafficking victims as well as the perpetrators. Um, um, this is a little bit of a tangent, but I know, um, for example, some prisons have these like rehabilitation programs where the uh, victims and the perpetrators, uh, not, of course, not in the same case, but uh, basically speak to each other to try to kind of, you know, get each other's perspective of, of how something like this could unfold. And one of the big discussions during that podcast was not calling a human trafficker a pimp, you know, because in kind of social, um, like the social sphere and like movies, it's all, it's almost kind of been glorified this term of, mm -hmm. of being a pimp, but to call, call them a trafficker um, and to say that they trafficked people versus they pimp them or they, um, or whatever words have you. I mean, they, they abuse people, right? So they're um, abusers. Um, and I, I think that the other thing that's really important is, you know, we're using terminology right now, like victim, survivor. And it's important to emphasize that, you know, every individual um, articulates their situation differently. So I had a patient, I remember very early on who, um, two patients actually, who were hospitalized and said, you know, everyone's looking at us here like we're whores. And I said, I, I don't look at you like that. I, I think you're victims. And they, they hated that worse 
than me thinking they were a whore. They were not victims. This wasn't, this was our choice. So we have to be very careful. Like here amongst us, we can say victims, survivors, or individuals with lived experiences um, has become a, a phrase I've been using more frequently. But I think that we want to make sure that when you're speaking to somebody, you don't use terminology to them that they have not adopted themselves because they might not conceptualize themselves as a victim. They might not conceptualize themselves as a survivor. So it's important that, you know, again, when we're talking about it kind of abstractly and academically, I think that, you know, that's that's okay. But for the individual, we have to be very sensitive to the language we use to that person because they might not see themselves that way. And that can be traumatic, distressing, and actually cause more harm than good. Absolutely. And especially with using the correct terms or what they're comfortable with, it's all like the big picture is giving them their power back because definitely calling them a victim is not going to accomplish that. Uh, but just letting them decide and letting them make the choices, and we'll talk about that later, but even when you're talking about the next steps, what they're going to do next, it's all their choice. So everything centers around giving them their power to make the decisions and refer to themselves um, as they see fit. Yeah, thank you for that. I think uh, words have power, like I said before, and it's important to allow patients to, um, you know, direct their care and also for us to support them in an empathetic way that that meets them where they're at. Um, I'll take this time right now to um, ask y'all how, like, what are some of the flags that, you know, even physicians and residents and, and even medical students should be looking out for when trying to um, identify patients who have gone through this? Uh, what are some barriers, myths, such like that? There's like, um, you know, a lot of lists that we kind of go through as far as red flags, um, you know, uh, through Polaris and uh, even different uh, uh, organizations that work with survivors uh, directly. Um, we go through different kind of indicators. Um, some of these things could be uh, if, if somebody's presenting and uh, they don't have their ID on them, if somebody's kind of forcing them to um, and speaking for them. Um, situations where through their jobs, they're not getting paid. Um, so, you know, get asking all these questions where their job was not what they had signed up for, working long hours, um, all these things um, can be can be red flags. Sometimes we, the symptoms can be, or the, the, the red flag could be avoiding like eye contact, um, but these are not, um, not like all red flags mean that there's definitely a situation where somebody's getting trafficked. Um, but those are just some of the things that that could be seen. Yeah, there's a lot of overlap between, you know, substance use and uh, substance abuse um, being directly induced by the trafficker or them like preying on this population of people that already have an illicit substance use issue and using that against them. So um, when I'm in the ED um, and I see someone for an overdose, I don't necessarily have to say, oh, this is a victim of trafficking, but I just have to pause and wonder and look further for other possible red flags. So anytime I have someone with an overdose or a mental health problem, depression or a suicide attempt, um, I just have to look further and see what were some other other visits for? Did they actually come in after an assault and they actually eloped from the emergency department? 
Um, did they come in and they refused to get registered and they became, you know, erratic and the chart says they became, you know, um, you know, hypervigilant and agitated and left the ED or something or had to get escorted with security. So all of these uh, are potentially red flags um, in the emergency department. So there's a lot of social red flags, whether they're aggressive or not making eye contact or um, that's why it's important too that the registrars get trained because they're the first people to interact with them and they were the ones that could notice they don't have their ID, they don't know their address, um, and they're with someone who's a very dominating companion at the bedside. So, um, and we can go through a lot of the physical signs as well, but um, there's a lot out there and that's why we're kind of trying to spread awareness about getting everyone trained up. Yeah, no, I, I agree with everything that, that everyone's just said. And I think that it really, it's what we're talking about is recognition of risk and risk of interpersonal violence, not just human trafficking on its own, but human trafficking as part of an umbrella of interpersonal violence, right? And being in the ED or in an urgent care setting or elsewhere and recognizing like, hey, there's some things that are going on here that just make me stop and go, hmm, that's you know, concerning um, what, you know, and, and collecting that information. And, you know, it's not so much a checkbox approach. Sometimes it's a patient who has come back multiple times for, you know, STI checks or has come back for multiple assaults or has had multiple suicide attempts. There may be more underneath the surface that we're not aware of. It might be human trafficking. It might be exploitation. It might be something else, but the exploration of interpersonal violence in their lives or trauma in their lives, I think is really paramount. And that's, again, us as clinicians recognizing risk in the patient. Now, in terms of identification, I think there's really only one way to identify someone, and that's if they self-disclose. And that's really challenging. Most people are not ready to disclose. Disclosure is a process. It's not an event. And we know that from the sexual abuse literature. So it's not necessarily about getting the right question where that person is going to answer it that way, you know, give us the information that we're we're hoping to glean. It's about continuing to explore and building relationships so that in the event that they feel safe and feel ready to disclose, we're ready to receive that information. So how do you get to that point where, um, where you, you can make a patient feel comfortable. Oftentimes, specifically, you know, since this is an, an EM podcast or uh, which I hope everyone listens to, but you know, since we try to gear it towards EM physicians and trainees, uh, sometimes, yeah, of course we have uh, patients who come in um, regularly to the ER because that might be their, their source of primary care. But for some of the patients that we see once um, in a while or, or just once, is there any way that we can um, effectively build rapport or what are some techniques you can do to kind of get to that point for a patient to feel comfortable with you to to let you know or to to ask for help if they need it yeah I mean I think it starts with taking a temperature of the situation right so I you know can walk into an emergency I remember walking into an emergency room with someone who's just been identified as possibly involved in exploitation or trafficking and they're pissed and they don't want to be there and they want, they're looking for sharp objects to throw at me, right? I'm not going to sit down and say, has anyone ever asked you to exchange something for, for sex, right? That's not the right time. So it comes down to us as clinicians taking a temperature of the situation. And I, you have to remove judgment. You have to remove 
any sort of indication that you might be judging and be present and receive the information that they're providing to you, even if it goes against any other objective information that you have. I've had patients come in after they were found advertised on social media, after they were found by law enforcement, um, about to exchange sex for money and still deny that this is something that they were doing. And rather than argue with them, I had to meet them where they were. So meet people where they are. And if you are able to do that, they will come back to you and they will come back. I mean, Dr. Reyes can speak to this, but they will come back to the same ED and they might even see if you're there or you're working. Um, so it's really about not necessarily going for the jugular and asking those those questions. I mean, this is complex PTSD. People don't come into the ED or come into a doctor's office and say, "Hey, I've been traumatized." Um, it just doesn't. It's it's against you know generally how people present. So we have to be able to sit in that gray zone with them and and really provide them the space to say, "This is a, sp a safe space for you to come and take care of your body." Absolutely. And we've heard um, other survivors of trafficking state that they've, like, quote unquote, tried out um, a certain ED, a certain setting um, for whatever care, and they've just kind of seen what it's like if they feel safe. Um, so we have to kind of put aside this hope, this expectation that we're going to save the patient today, like today is the day. And we have to just make them feel safe because Honestly, we have to listen to what they need. So if they come in, right, and they're freezing cold, they're wearing like, you know, short shorts, tank top, maybe they're wet, maybe they're hungry, um, put their needs first and just ask them what they need. You know, give them something to eat, give them a warm blanket, just ask what else they need to feel safe. Um, and before you ask any probing questions, just ask them if they feel safe right here, right now, because maybe their phone is on, maybe they're being tracked or they're being recorded, um, and you will actually make their situation so much worse. And just remember that their distrust of the system is probably from their prior negative experiences from seeking help. So just kind of bear that in mind and put their needs first. And that's also goes into, you know, giving them the power back. That's pretty important. I totally agree with them. Um everything that was said is um, I feel that every situation of human trafficking is unique, you know, and it's important to use a trauma-informed victim-centered response, um, especially that not all victims of trafficking or, you know, um, individuals with lived experiences either will be comfortable in disclosing their situation um, and or ready to seek assistance from service providers or anyone. Um, so just recognizing that there's always an opportunity to provide a potential victim with the information options um, and the support first off like that would be needed, but taking a trauma-informed approach when assessing these different situations. So for the trauma, um, trauma-centered approach, um, that's similar to the trauma-informed care, correct? Yes. And do uh, most uh, physicians or other folks in the healthcare field usually get that training or is that something that folks uh, need to seek out themselves. I know it's it's something I've heard in the last couple of years, but, um, and it's only in the last year of medical school that we really had workshops regarding that. So if you could kind of, for our listeners, explain a little bit about what that is and, and what the um, purpose of it is. Sure, so we offer um, through our program, the Human Trafficking Education Advocacy Response Program with Northwell, we offer a trauma-informed care session along with our human trafficking session. So trauma-informed care shifts the focus from 
Um, we try to teach show the providers that shifts your focus from what's wrong with you to what happened to you. So the trauma-informed approach to care, it acknowledges that um, the healthcare team, you know, needs to have like that complete picture of the patient's life or situation, whether it's the past or the present, in order to provide an effective healthcare service um, in that moment. And just taking that approach and just being more informed and how that can improve the patient's overall um, experience. I'm not sure if anyone else would like to elaborate more, um, but that's just my opinion on how that would work within our program. Yeah, I think Wolanda explained that pretty well. Um, you know, we really focus on um, the interaction with the patient that uh, we provide that care, kind of like what Jennifer and Dana had mentioned earlier, in a non-judgmental way. Um, we try to educate um, the person that's there in front of us and try to empower them um, to, to make decisions and choices, providing them with resources, kind of just really seeing what their needs are, um, starting with their safety, um, trying to make sure that even the interaction with them, um, something simple like making sure that it's a private interaction because sometimes we're in the hallway there in the ER and they're not really wanting to uh, to speak up or to be honest. And so giving them that privacy, um, all of that together uh, just helps to, to provide care that's in a, in a trauma-informed manner. Yeah, so what Dr. Paul's referring to too, I just thought of, um, we use a tool called the PAIR tool. Um, we incorporate that in training as well, where it speaks of, you know, providing privacy, you know, the education, the asking, the respecting, responding when it comes to, you know, your approach in having these conversations. And I feel that that has been um, very important for the providers to um, learn and understand as they move forward with that type of approach of being more trauma-informed and assisting um, patients and victims. That's great. Yeah, I hadn't heard of that tool before, so I think that's super cool. Um, Dr. Kaplan? Yeah, was, to your point, um, unfortunately, it's not standard practice to teach this in medical school or residency programs. I think it's coming more to the surface now as we recognize that most individuals have had some form of trauma in their lives. And therefore, when they come to the doctor, when they come to the healthcare sphere, we need to recognize that um, I, this is something new. Part of my training in child abuse fellowship was understanding trauma-informed, patient-centered, culturally sensitive care. Um, but that is a very specific fellowship um, and not on, not all medical Providers get that training, although I do think it's on the horizon that it will become more standard to have that as, you know, we gain more insight into how it really affects the doctor or patient or practitioner patient relationship. Yeah, I hope so as well. I remember it was my, I believe my second year of medical school where I just kind of stumbled, stumbled upon an event that was being held by the American Medical Association where one of the founders of PATH, I believe, um, Dr. Kanani Tichin was doing kind of a workshop about human trafficking advocacy. And, and that was the first real, um, you know, robust lecture I'd gotten about the topic. And, and that was kind of when I started getting interested in this and wondering and wishing that it was part of my curriculum. And I had organized a talk where she kind of came to our, our school and uh, spoke with our club about, you know, like get and give anecdotes about like, it's, it's everywhere around us. If, if you if you're working in healthcare, you will, you will meet someone who's, who's lived through human trafficking and being able to have this type of knowledge is, you know, priceless and, and it's such an important way to not only support patients, but also 
you know, know what's up to be able to advocate in the correct way. And I think that um, some of the stuff uh, I wanted to kind of uh, circle back to um, uh, Miss Green about how the how she's working with local organizations. I think um, it's really important to have those types of um, you know like sensors in the community and be able to work with organizations that are already doing the good work. Yeah, it's been um, a real eye opener too. Like when we spoke earlier about language and that's in like the healthcare setting. And I've noticed too, where the community has their own language and of how they may see a situation or even the work that is done. Um, so recognizing like how powerful that language is, how powerful of a tool it is and how the community responds. So working within a community, even on just like debunking some of those myths that it's already been established for them um, and just seeing how they're eager to, to work um, and that's in the private part of like, I work a lot with schools and teachers and PTAs and just like their everyday parents and wanting to learn and know more about human trafficking, anti-human trafficking efforts, and then other groups, um, actual anti-human trafficking um, organizations that are doing some great work and trying to advocate and assist um, those with lived experiences. And it's just been a real, a real fight and um, bringing more awareness to light, uh, but also the amazing work that is being done within small groups. So we know what we're doing within healthcare and trying to educate providers, but to see on the outside, just on the everyday, you know, mom that started a anti-human trafficking uh, education group for her local church or community and just trying to promote more education is just and really highlighting what's going on, not just an over there problem, but happening in backyards and neighborhoods all across our country um, has been really rewarding. Uh, I wanna ask you, I wanna ask you guys all about your projects, but I know it's for our second episode, so I don't wanna get too ahead of ourselves. And this is a plug for our listeners to circle back to our second episode where we'll actually be talking about, you know, the barriers to change, what we're trying to do and current projects that these amazing folks are doing. but. I'm not trying, I'm trying not to get too ahead of myself, even though this, this sounds so cool. Um, I did want to circle back because I kind of took us down onto a tangent when, um, when we were initially talking about um, some of the barriers to identifying victims um, and as well as uh, myths that, that are not quite like, that are not true. Uh, sure. So yeah, some of the barriers are kind of immediately um, experienced, especially with a clinician who's like working a night shift you know, just imagine how busy it is at three in the morning and you have a lot of patients to see, um, you know, picture approaching a patient in the hallway with a, you know, dominating companion um, and they don't speak English. Um, and you're like, oh, well, their companion's offering to translate for them. Oh, okay, that makes my life a lot easier. So right away, you're letting the trafficker speak for them. Um, you're letting your bias, they're in the hallway. This is probably gonna be quick. It's probably not important. Um, so kind of immediately time, um, awareness, uh, education of these red flags. Um, after that, um, honestly, it's the provider not knowing how to help, um, being unaware of the local resources available. Um, so kind of learning about each institution and what your resources are locally. 
Um, and then a lot of providers, you know, naturally just uh, can only extrapolate that if they get involved, they're going to go to courts. It's just going to take up a lot of their time or it's some kind of HIPAA violation um, to disclose certain uh, details and not knowing how to document in the chart. Um, so there's just a lot of barriers on our side. Um, you know, and then, of course, that's just uh, even blunted by the barriers on the victim side or potential survivor side. So, as you can imagine, they've undergone a lot of trauma bonding, um, which we can talk about as well. But they basically um, are loyal to their trafficker, perhaps over who knows what amount length of time they've been brainwashed to think that if they say anything, um, they're going to be physically hurt or their loved ones will be hurt or they'll get deported. There are just tons of threats against them. Um, they probably think of it as another power dynamic where, you know, their provider is, um, you know, a, a basically higher power exerting their power over them. So just a lot of barriers um, on both sides that have to be addressed um, um, to properly examine and uh, appropriately treat someone in the emergency department and in any setting for that matter. Yeah, and I'll just add to what uh, Jennifer just mentioned, you know, in a practical sense, uh, several weeks ago, I, I had a patient that was in a trafficking situation and I was caring for her and I kind of knew the, the resources I wanted to try to connect her to and all these things. But the reality was as a physician, uh, my time was just so, so divided and so split um, that that was a real barrier for me as a, as a physician. And so it's just so important to have a team-based approach in how to, uh, uh, connect with uh, patients and to connect them to resources. Um, and in this specific situation, you know, between nurses and uh, social work, they were able to kind of provide the resources that this patient needed. Um, and so we were able to overcome some of those kind of practical barriers of time and uh, just uh, just difficulty for us as healthcare uh, providers to be able to, to do the things that even though we know we need to do them, um, we need to have a team-based approach to be able to overcome some of those barriers. And, you know, I, I think in addition, um, many patients, you know, what the process they go through is grooming, right? And that's what we see again in, in sexual abuse is someone um, who gains the trust of someone else um, by, you know, by billing themselves as someone that they can trust, by billing themselves as someone that they can love. So many patients don't view the person that they're with as their abuser or their trafficker or their exploiter. They view them as a loved one. Whether that's a, a significant other, a, a mother figure, a you know parental figure, and so they don't conceptualize what's going on as trafficking, which makes it difficult for us because we might say, you know, looks like there's a lot of risk here, um, but that is someone. Who, nope, that's the person I'm in love with. That's the person who takes care of me, and they don't conceptualize it that way. So then, how do you provide resources? So I, I think you have to again, meet the patient where he or she is and provide resources specific to what that person is saying. So we might be worried about exploitation or trafficking, but they're saying that, you know, their their real major issue is um, domestic violence. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that might be what they're ready to disclose. That might be what they're ready to talk about. So maybe we give resources for that. Um, and I think that's where, you know, again, patient-centered trauma-informed care really comes down is that we might have our own idea of what we think is best, but we have to go based on what the patient is telling us. So what are some of the physical exam findings or other things we should be looking for when we are meeting patients? 
We might be encountering patients that in general have signs of poor living conditions, whether they had scabies, bed bugs, poor hygiene, poor dental health, or frequent infections. Um, also take a look at their arms, their wrists, make sure you check for any signs of self-harm, any prior suicide attempts. Um, and on physical exams specifically, um, you know, you're, we already mentioned looking at their skin for signs of trauma, rash, track marks. Um, a special note about branding is a lot of um, traffickers will brand their patients. So it'll look kind of like an atypical tattoo that may have what they call themselves. It may have a gang name or symbols. It may say daddy. Um, it may be in atypical locations, like a victim of sex trafficking may have tattoos on her thighs, um, one that could say royal flesh, which is a gang name, um, other things like that. Um, and then on physical exam, as far as you know, GYNGU, we have to mention frequent STIs, um, uh, frequent um, unknown pregnancies, foreign bodies, um, and then as well, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of red flags for victims of uh, labor trafficking. So just kind of pay attention for signs of poor working conditions, whether it's um, delayed presentations for clearly a work-related injury, um, chemical exposures. Um, sun exposures that appear to be severe, um, machine-related injuries, and otherwise signs that patients are malnourished um, and unprotected at work on the job. Yeah, I think um, it's super important to look out for those signs to make sure you're not missing something. Thank you for all of that wonderful information. I had heard a story about um, from a surgeon, actually, who talked about how you know, they had a patient they were doing some sort of procedure on, which I, I can't remember, but it was in the OR and, and they had noticed some sort of like branding or tattoo in like the pelvic region. And they remember, and it was something that was, was atypical, you know, it wasn't like super serious or obvious, but it was something kind of like, a, oh, well, that's an interesting choice or, or that's an odd choice. And they kind of, unfortunately, like chuckled and kind of were like, oh, I guess that that's just, that's just what they're um, what they wanted to do, you know, which everyone's allowed to do what they want to do. Um, but then it was only looking back and after some of their education when they were like, oh, was that like a flag for something that I should have, you know, delved deeper into. So, you know, things that kind of strike you as odd, or I feel like maybe give you a, a twinge of something, maybe taking a second to really like reflect and be like, am I missing something that's, that's not obvious here? So, you know, with all these barriers to identifying patients, but, you know, the, the important need to actually facing the reality that human trafficking is happening all around us. Um, and sometimes, you know, physicians and, and trainees have a, a natural nervousness to maybe breach that barrier with their patients, even though they want to. So what happens if you get it wrong? Like, are there, like, what, are there consequences of asking someone falsely? Like, what, what can you kind of speak about why, why you should think about that, but also why you should push forward? Yeah, that's a great question. So honestly, with this training, um, you know, the consequences of not asking um, is worse than asking and feeling embarrassed. Um, and it really matters on how you frame the question. You know, just as Dr. Kaplan alluded to earlier with an agitated patient, you know, who feels unsafe, you know, to abruptly ask them if they're exchanging sex for money or for shelter is absolutely inappropriate. So it kind of goes together with uh, the creation of safety. Um, it really matters if you um, provide their needs first and then, you know, when appropriate, ask them 
um, a couple of questions about why you know, why this and that, or how they presented this way. Um, and you can also frame it as, oh, this is a standard question we ask every patient, you know, like, are you able to come and go freely where you work? Um, like, do you work and live at the same place? Uh, we ask everyone if they feel safe leaving uh, their place where they live, if they needed to, if they're allowed to leave. Um, and just kind of doing it non-judgmentally, um, if they tell you that they have, you know, frequent um, visits for sexually transmitted um, infections or for certain things, not acting surprised, um, but asking questions, um, you know, very gently and always watching your, uh, you know, your body language, not having your arms crossed across your chest, um, not watching your face and your tone of voice, um, but it all kind of goes around to uh, trauma-informed care for the patient as a whole. Yeah, and I, I think we've come full circle in that it's not just about the language we use, you know, as we refer to this population, it's the language we use when asking questions, right? Um, it's, it's if you, if I remember when I started to try and screen the, and again, I'm a child abuse pediatrician, if you're coming to see me, there is some degree of risk going on, right? So I do ask questions of patients, um, and I try to frame it in a way that's non-threatening, but in my kind of earlier years doing this work, I remember asking several teenagers, has anyone ever asked you to, you know, exchange sex for money? And I asked, I don't know, a handful of kids and they all said, no, no, no. Until finally someone was brave enough to say, what does exchange mean? So that was like, ah, right. I'm using a <laughs> language that no one understands. Right. So I had to change what I was saying. And now what I ask is, well, has someone ever asked you to have sex or something? And just, you know, I don't ask, that's not the first question. I think if you're going to ask that first, you have to talk about specifically for sex trafficking, sex. I think you have to talk about sex that you want to have, sex that you haven't wanted to have. When it comes to labor, are you working? Is it work that you want to do? Is it work that you don't want to do? You have to have an anchor conversation and then not pivot, not out of nowhere, drop this bomb, right? But then in the conversation, you know, when I, I talk to people and they've told me about their life situation and, you know, whatever it is that person is telling you, I always like to know, you know, is there anyone, you know, that's been having sex for something to survive to, you know, any of that. And much like with teenagers, if you're asking them about, you know, drug use, you know, is your friend doing it? You might get some information from there. Right. So that's, that's how I kind of start, but I don't ask every single patient every single time, because it might just not be the right time. But really, you know, again, it's incumbent on us to, again, take a temperature and then for us to consider our language. And I also think it's just important when we're talking about being scared to get it wrong. Um, we have to be kind of, we need to redefine what success really is. Um, a lot of times we think that as a caregiver, we want to somehow rescue people and, and save them from their situation. Um, and that's not, that's not what our job is. It's not what our role is. And so, um, we need to redefine what we think ought to happen in those situations. Um, sometimes it's just letting them know that they're in a place where somebody's going to listen to them um, and they're going to be treated with respect. And so that way they feel safe to be able to come back maybe in the future to kind of um, get connected to other uh, help or resources they might need. So I think um, uh, just like as was mentioned, like we, we can't be scared to go there. We have to go there and, and ask um some of those tough questions, but it's about how we do it, our body language, and just the respect that we give, the dignity that we give, and do it in a non-judgmental way. 
Um, so that way we can uh, try to, um, to avoid making the situation worse. Yeah, there's a lot to chew on here. And um, I know there's so much more like we could ask right now. And, and I just wanna thank this wonderful panel for this amazing discussion. I think we covered good ground and, and built a nice introductory foundation, but this goes so much deeper and, and there's so much more to learn. Um, I wanted to kind of uh, close the episode because I know we, co we covered a lot right now and there's a lot to digest and process. Our second episode is going to focus more on potential solutions, barriers to change and important projects and work that's being done. But at this time, I just wanted to once again, thank our panelists and um, invite our listeners to hang out with us for our second episode. Hey, thank you so much for having us. Thank, thank you, you so very much. <laughs>